friends, fellow philosophers. Uh, today we have the task of tackling David Hume and his engagement with uh, the teleological argument. Uh, this is from his work on the dialogues concerning natural religion. Uh, and so really what's going on here is we're trying to wrestle with uh, this question of what can we conclude about God, if anything, by looking at the world around us and thinking about uh, the kinds of order or purpose or design that we see in that world uh, and what it can tell us and, and how far it can take us uh, or where it can't take us. Now, just to be clear, uh, at the outset of this, um, I actually I think I find Hume helpful here because he's serving as a helpful reminder of what we can and what we cannot conclude uh, just based on our experience of the world. Uh, Hume is uh, an empiricist. When it comes to knowledge, when it comes to the question of how do we know what we know, uh, Hume says we have to stick to our experience. Uh, on page 90 of our textbook, he says experience alone can point out the true cause of any phenomenon. And so, in other words, he's saying that, you know, really the way that we know what we know uh, is by looking at past experience, looking at our experience of the world around us, uh, and drawing conclusions uh, based on that. Uh, and so he, um, part of what he's highlighting, I think, is the way that um, perhaps our uh, assumptions about God or our presuppositions about God uh, can and do uh, often shape our experience of the world. Uh, and, and he is trying to, in some ways, advocate for a, a perspective that, that just says, well, what if you don't assume that? Or what if you don't presuppose that? Can you really draw the same, the same kind of conclusion? Um, and, and so as we dig into this reading and think about what he's saying here, it's important to be able to place uh, the, the three different characters that we hear in this dialogue. And again, for some people, dialogue is helpful uh, and, and kind of a good way to engage. You hear the back and forth of different ideas. Um, for other people, it's just confusing because you're like, what, you know, who, who is saying what? What am I supposed to take away from here? Is there somebody that, uh, you know, Hume agrees with or doesn't agree with? How, how should we understand this? Um, as you look at this dialogue, Cleanthes uh, character basically sounds almost exactly like William Paley. Uh, the uh, Cleanthes' basic point is that you know, just like human artifacts, things things that we produce point to human designers. So the universe uh, points to a designer God uh, who created and, and made all things, um, which is why they function with the order and the purpose that they do. Um, in fact, some in some ways, Cleanthes is almost word for word, um, just echoing echoing Paley and what what Paley says. Uh, so Cleanthes is one of the characters. The second character who we don't hear quite as much from uh, is Demea, and and Demea really represents this kind of orthodox believer who doesn't really think you should even try to prove God by any kind of this, this natural theology or natural religion. Um, Demea says, "Look, I've I've got." The Bible, uh, that's enough. I don't need these kind of philosophical proofs or rational proofs um, that the evidence is always going to fall short uh, in, in some way and that uh, it's almost uh, in some ways sacrilegious to try to prove God uh, through these different natural means, like build up to that. 
the third character is Philo. Uh, and Philo, you know, really is, is likely most representative of, is representative of Hume's position. Um, and, and Philo is, you know, he, when you, when you listen to this character in the section that we read, it's not always so much that, that Philo is an outright atheist denying God. It's, it's more that Philo is very skeptical about, uh, our epistemology, about our ability to just look at the world around us uh, and sort of build up to belief in God. Or, or, as we'll see, his point is if you just start with the world around us, that the God uh, or gods that you end up with is actually not what uh, a good, most good theist, uh, most good Christians would actually want to to identify and say, yeah, that's that's God. Um and so, so Philo is really going to attack uh, Cleanthes slash Paley's main point, uh, which is that there's this strong analogy between um, human artifacts and humans, watches, watchmakers, and the universe and God. How, so really one of the key questions that we're wrestling with is um, how strong is that analogy? How good, how close is, is that analogy? If it's close... Uh, then it's strong and the argument works better. If it's not so close, then then maybe uh, the argument that uh, Paley's putting forth doesn't really work uh, as well as he thinks it does. So remember we said last time that it, in this discussion, uh, a big question is how do we understand the order uh, that's there in the universe? Is the order proof of an external designer uh, in, in the way that... Um, Paley talks about, or is this order proof of, of some kind of internal organizing principle? The difference, again, uh, is, you know, with something like a watch or something like a canoe, there's this external design that's imposed on the, the material, whereas with living beings, uh, there's a kind of growth and, and a natural development that happens as a result of a, a, the internal organizing Principle, and so that's that's a question: is what do we do with uh, with the kind of order uh, that we see in the in the world around us, and can we come to some kind of kind of conclusions about that? Um, now, uh, Philo has a number of objections that, that you see. I'm just going to mention uh, a, a few of them as you go through this reading. Um, Philo says first, he says this is not uh, Cleanthes way of thinking is not actually careful philosophical thought that that. Uh, it's just sort of a kind of a watch and watchmaker type thinking is like a quick and easy analogy, but but starts to break down uh, as you uh, examine it uh, more closely. Uh, a second thing that he says is his critique here is that uh, there's a kind of fallacy of composition or a kind of part whole fallacy. In other words, that um, maybe there is a kind of order or purpose or design um, uh, in the parts of the universe that we know or parts that, that, that we're familiar with, uh, but it's a leap then to say uh, because there is some kind of order of purpose or design in what we're familiar with, uh, then this means the whole thing clearly has purpose and design and, and there's a sense in which we're trying to draw conclusions about the whole uh, just from a part. It'd be like saying like, well, you know, the, the human eye looks like it was designed, therefore the whole human being uh, is designed that there's a there's a kind of leap there where the conclusion is going beyond uh, what 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 the premise actually states. 
Um, and similarly, a kind of third concern he raises is that our emphasis on design is anthropocentric. In other words, that, that, it, that it's human-centered. It, you know, this is how we human beings work. This is how we think about things. We, we make things. We produce and create things. And so it's almost like we're kind of projecting our experience onto uh, the whole of reality, that there must be a kind of uh, divine watchmaker because that's you know that's what we know or that's what we we experience and he says was well, that is that true or are we just kind of projecting what we what what we're used to seeing a uh, fourth concern that he raises is uh, there's a sense in which our world is uh, quote unquote in progress in other words we're not at a finished state things are still uh, going on things are still developing and unfolding so can we really pass judgment and say, yeah, I can really see the the, the, the design um, or the purpose of the order when it when it seems like, um, you know, we're not in some ways we're not to the end yet. So how can you how can you pass judgment in the middle? Um, a fifth thing then that he mentions as well is that the, this this kind of argument from experience doesn't work. So part of Paley's argument, if you remember from our, our uh, last conversation, uh, is that, you know, we can, we, can, we can perceive intention in things even if we uh, weren't there. Uh, and so, you know, whether it's pyramids or, or the smartphone that you're using or whatever, even if you're not there, you can still perceive this, this kind of intention. But Hume pushes into this more and he says, look, the, the argument from experience doesn't work because of the singularity of the world's origin. In other words, the creation of these different individual things uh, is different from you know, the beginning of the space-time universe, if, if, if we were to put it that way, that there's something about the, the, the cause and effect, the coming into existence of, uh, of the universe, of reality, um, that you just kind of can't match that up against any particular thing within the universe. Uh, and so Philo raises these questions that I think are good questions, are questions that, um, yeah, the, the Paley's argument um, has to really wrestle with and think through more, more deeply. Um, but as, as, so he lays out these reasons. Um, Cleanthes, <clears throat> on page 92 in your reading, um, Cleanthes, as, as uh, he's thinking about how to sort of rescue the, the watchmaker argument, how to still uh, sustain this, um, Philo points out that, that Cleanthes is assuming that like effects produce or prove like causes. So let me say that again, page 92. Um, he says, like effects produce, prove like causes. Uh, and, and so there's this this idea that if the effect is similar, uh, then the cause is similar. This is how arguments by analogy work. This is this is the, the point that Paley is making. Um, and so what what Philo is really going to do is say um, first raise this question: How similar? Are the two things that we're talking about? If we're, if we're talking about a watch and the universe, how similar are those two things, right? Look at a watch. Now look at the universe. Now look at the watch. Now look back at the universe. Uh, there's not that much similarity. 
Uh, and Hume, through Philo, you know, presses on this and says, look, think about what we know about the universe thanks to telescopes, what we know about the universe thanks to microscopes. The universe is so complex, is, is so massive that, you know, yeah, your wristwatch has some complexity there, but are these two things really comparable? Um, can you really draw uh, any conclusion, or are these two things really almost so far apart in their similarity that you, that you can't really uh, say too much, or certainly not what Paley or Cleanthes wants to say. Um, and, and so Philo is stepping in there, just pushing these things apart, saying, look, these are, these are so uh, dissimilar. Uh, and so Cleanthes tries to step into this, and Cleanthes actually says, no, 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 I, you know, I want to emphasize, this is on page uh, 93, um, Philo knows he's, he's painting him into a corner. This is what you do when you're writing philosophical dialogues. Um, you uh, can kind of make your position a little bit, a little bit stronger uh, and lean into that. And so uh, page, page 93, uh, Cleanthes is basically saying, look, when I'm talking about a mind, the divine mind... The, the creator, um, this mind is, is like the human, like the human mind. And, and the more like the human, the, the better. So Philo is pushing the, 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 the watch and the universe really far apart. Cleanthes is trying to actually tie those back together and saying, no, 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 there is a similarity here between uh, the human mind and the divine mind, because again, the closer those are tied together, the more this uh, argument can actually work. Uh, and Philo basically at this point uh, says, gotcha. Um, because Cleanthes is, has made this move. Uh, and so Philo says, okay, if that's, if that's really true, if, if you want to tie these two things really close together and say, yeah, we're definitely working with this watch and watchmaker analogy that the divine mind and human mind are, are pretty close, then here is the quote-unquote God you would have to, you'd have to go with. Uh, that you'd have to say, this is the God that, that you've just proved, Cleanthes. Congratulations. Um, now, remember, as Philo does this, he is drawing on empirical evidence from the world around us, uh, Philo is not saying, he's not assuming any uh, doctrinal content. He's not assuming anything from the Bible. He's saying, let's just go with your, your natural reason, because that's what you're trying to use. And based on that and your experience of the world, um, who is this God that, that is proved by the teleological argument? Uh, and so one of the first characteristics, he says, well, this, this quote-unquote God that is proved uh, is a finite God, not an infinite God. Um, because uh, the universe, uh, even if it's really massive, even if it's really complex, uh, is still finite. It's, it's not infinite. And so if that's the case, uh, then, you know, look at all the finite, limited, created things uh, around you. Human beings create watches, computers, um, cars, all kinds of things. They are finite things created by finite beings. And so, therefore, the God that you've, quote-unquote, proved uh, through this argument uh, really is a finite God, not an infinite God. Uh, Philo then also says, look, this, this God is probably flawed uh, 
um, definitely not perfect. Uh, in other words, he says, look, um, because of the problem of epistemology, in other words, the question of how do we know what we know, um, look around the world, and I, I think you would probably come to the conclusion that there are a lot of things that they actually don't maybe operate the way it seems like they should operate. There's a lot of pain and evil and, and suffering in the world. Uh, and so if you're going strictly on um, you know, what you see and your experience, uh, your experience probably teaches you that you know, either you know, this God is um, really not very powerful uh, so, yeah, maybe God wants everything to be better, but just doesn't have the power to do it. Um, or maybe this God is not actually really even good, so he's he's powerful. He could do this, but he, he doesn't. He sort of somehow enjoys people's suffering um, or, or the reality of sin or those kinds of things. In any case, uh, Hume through Philo is saying the God that you get here uh, is uh, certainly flawed, definitely not perfect. Um. He goes on to say a few other things. He says the God that you've proved is, is probably many, that there's maybe a whole pantheon of gods here, not just just one God. Uh, why? Because, again, if you're thinking based on our human experience, um, I think about the building that I'm sitting in right now, uh, Kuiper College. This is a pretty big building. If somebody came up and, and said, uh, yeah, uh, there was one person who uh, created and constructed that whole building, there's no way I'd believe them. Why? Because it's you know just this one building alone that I'm sitting in is, is, is so complex uh, that clearly my assumption is that there are multiple uh, people involved in designing and building it. And so Philo uh, is just saying the, the same thing. Look, think about how complicated the universe is. Um, it's probably the case that there are a whole bunch of gods and, and uh, with all different areas of responsibilities. That, that, that would be the likely conclusion if you're pressing this analogy to its, its logical conclusion. Um, and then he says a number of other things. You know, maybe, maybe the God who made this world is a copycat. Maybe there are other worlds like this, and, and this God was just, you know, kind of plagiarizing, and so that's why the world is the way it is. Or, you know, maybe there is the, the suffering and difficulty in the world because God is an eternal bungler who's kind of been, you know, trying to create, um, you know, a better and better universe, and it just, you know, isn't quite working out. Or, or maybe there's problems in the world because the God who created this world or gods are, are, are a novice. They're new. Uh, or maybe they're you know old and decrepit, couldn't really see what they were doing when they were uh, creating the world, and so that's why there are some of these deficiencies and and, and things like that. Um, and probably, as as far as we know, these gods are probably sexual and corporeal. In other words, they they, they have bodies um, because you know when you think about a watch and a watchmaker, we we don't have any uh, experience, says says Hume, of. Uh, kind of a disembodied mind or disembodied intelligence. All the all the watchmakers we know uh, are sexual corporeal beings, and so if we're gonna, you know, say that this analogy is strong, uh, then that, that we have to say the same thing about uh, about God or the gods. Um, and so, you know, Philo really takes Cleanthes to task here uh, in terms of just raising the question: if you if you start from this assumption of empiricism and we can only judge by our experience of the world uh, and then we have this watch and watchmaker analogy and then we're going to push that all the way um, you know we, we see, you start to see uh, maybe some of the weaknesses of the teleological argument and as I mentioned at the, the end of the last podcast this is where you know Alvin Plantinga has pointed out that there are a lot of these um, related theistic beliefs that people have that are kind of all tied together 
uh, but they are distinct. You know, that the universe has order is a distinct belief from the idea that the universe was designed, which is a distinct belief from uh, the fact that the universe was designed by exactly one person or being, which is distinct from, you know, the universe was created by the person who designed it and, and so on. Uh, and so we just, part of my caution here is we have to be, uh, when you think about the teleological argument, uh, I, I think we have to be really careful about what kind of conclusions we're going to draw from it, um, especially if we kind of set up these uh, parameters that Hume does or, or that Paley does at the outset. So what do we take away from all this? So you get to the end of, of today's reading, and it, it's interesting to see get where Philo and Cleanthes are at, at the end of this reading on page 94. Um, Philo, even, even after, after all this discussion, uh, Philo does say, um, the universe may at some time have arisen from, quote, something like design, end quote. And so it's, so it's interesting he still... Um, he still kind of says, okay, that maybe it's still possible that there's something like design going on here. Um, but Philo's also really clear we cannot conclude uh, that uh, the designer is one perfect, infinite, good God. Um, that, that trying to draw that conclusion based on our experience of the world uh, is, in essence, overstepping the bounds of, of what you can get from the teleological argument. Um, Cleanthes has this really interesting uh, final response in our reading. He he says, in essence, that the hypothesis of design still is there. So so he points out, look, Philo, you even yourself said maybe there's something like design going on here, even if, if you can't really prove it. He says, look, you're still saying it, it's possible that something like this uh, is going on. And then Cleanthes himself says something that, you know, I always kind of scratched my head when I, when I um, first read this. He says, this I regard as a sufficient foundation for religion. Uh, what's he saying there? Uh, I, was, I scratched my head uh, when I first read this the first several times. Because, like, you know, is he saying, um, you know, that this is our firm foundation, not scripture, but this hypothesis of design? Or, what? you know, what's he saying? I, I think what he's saying is this, is that um, still, despite everything that Philo has said, Philo has not necessarily proven that it's irrational uh, to believe that, that there is something like design going on uh, when we look at, at the universe. And so, so Philo might be right that you cannot prove God through this, but at the same time, uh, Philo doesn't end up in this place where he would say you 100% that, that I've 100% proved that it's not God. And so the way I almost envision this is it is it's sort of like, you know, when you think about what's going on a stage on a play, like that's what you see, but there's all these things going on behind the scenes. And part of what Paley and, and Hume are wrestling with is the fact that what you see on the stage uh, is that, that there is some kind of order to the natural world, that, that there is this uh, functioning in terms of how, how things work and how things work together. Uh, the question is, uh, what's going on behind the scenes? Uh, but their point is, uh, epistemologically speaking, in other words, of what we can know, that there's a sense in which we can only know what we're seeing on the stage, uh, but we can't know what's going on behind the scenes. Is it is it that there is this this God that the Bible talks about? Uh, is it that there are you know multiple gods? Is it that uh, there is this kind of internal principle of order that that it, there, the order doesn't come 
you know, from an external source like God uh, giving order to creation, but but rather there's something internal uh, to the to the nature of reality itself that that has that kind of order, gives it that uh, at least appearance perhaps of design. Uh, and, and so, you know, we're really in this place where, uh, in essence, both the religious believer, the atheist, the skeptic, um, it, it's a question of, uh, you know, which, which way are you going to go? How are you going to uh, interpret what you're seeing on the stage? And I think part of, again, what Cleanthes is saying in closing here is uh, that, that Paley hasn't um, brought us to a point where we would say, absolutely, it cannot be. Uh, that uh, God is the one backstage um, doing this. Uh, and so I think that the discussion, you know, to wrap up our discussion of the teleological argument, again, it takes us back to this question, what exactly do arguments for God's existence do? Uh, and Hume is a great reminder that, that Christians have to be careful. Like we, a, a lot of times I feel like we do toss out, especially an argument like this, you know, argument from design, uh, in a kind of simplistic way. Uh, and really part of the reason that the argument from design is, is so compelling to a lot of a lot of Christians is because you already believe what the Bible teaches about who God is, that that, that, um, that perspective so shapes and informs how you engage and interpret the world around us uh, that it just it sort of look, looks obvious. But, but Hume is a reminder that if you if you were to bracket that out and try to approach this strictly from an empiricist perspective, uh, you know, it, in any case, at the very least, it's going to look less convincing. Uh, it maybe even leads you to some conclusions that you that you wouldn't want to draw. Uh, and so, as we as we continue to move ahead, um, it's good to keep that in mind to think about what can you take away that's helpful um, and, and can actually push you. But maybe what are some other ways that this actually uh, maybe chastens and, and kind of puts in its proper place some of these arguments that we might uh, toss out for, for God's existence. Um, well, thanks for hanging in there. Uh, this is, uh, David Hume is, is always tricky, but hopefully this has helped to clarify just a little bit of what's going on in the, uh, in the reading, and I'll continue to look forward to move together, uh, move forward together. Uh, until next time, blessings.